Welcome back to the Pete Space. Palette Life Sciences, sponsor of this podcast, is committed to bringing educational tools such as the Pete Space for sharing best practices and compelling conversations across a wide variety of pediatric urology and BUR topics. The content of today's episode is solely the opinion of Dr. Elias Webby, board-certified pediatric urologist at Children's Hospital of Orange County. In this episode, Dr. Webby will discuss treatment options of BUR. He will weigh in the advantages and disadvantages of antibiotic therapy, endoscopic treatment with deflux, open reimplantation, and robotic open reimplantation. And now here is Dr. Webby. Thank you, Brian, for having me today and for Palette Life Sciences for providing this platform to discuss such a worthwhile topic, which I think is very important to, to not only our patients, but their parents as well. And the entire pediatric urology world is this is a changing topic. It's an important topic. And it's a topic that uh, I think hopefully today we can cover a bit of ground on and cover quite a bit of content to help people manage our kids a little bit better. I think it would be great if we can start with the brief background and explanation of VUR, kind of how it's diagnosed and, and how it's changed over the years. Perfect. So vesicoureteral reflux uh, is a condition that we see uh, reasonably frequently in the uh, pediatric population. And oftentimes, it's uh, usually associated with children presenting with urinary tract infections, or it's also diagnosed at the time of being worked up for another condition called hydronephrosis, which essentially, crudely put, is some dilatation or swelling of the part of the urinary tract that transports urine. Most of the time, children present with reflux after a urinary tract infection in this day and age. And most of the time, about 30% of kids with urinary tract infections may have reflux seen. And that is a little different than the general population, which can have anywhere from 10, closer to 15% of an incidence rate of reflux in the general population. And this changes somewhat between uh, age, sex, ethnicity, and then likelihood of reflux being present if a sibling has it or a close family member. But most of the time, this is picked up after a urinary tract infection, usually either with a fever or after multiple urinary tract infections, or again, being worked up for other conditions, most notably hydronephrosis. Reflux essentially is exactly what it, it describes is the movement of urine from the bladder or from the lower urinary tract up to the kidneys, up the ureter, which is the tube that connects the kidney to the bladder, up the ureter towards the kidneys. And there's a whole grading system for this. And really, urine should never move in that direction. Urine is, as we all know, is produced in the kidneys, and then it should move in an anti-grade fashion down the ureters towards the bladder. When it moves up in a retrograde fashion, up towards the kidneys from the bladder, that is never normal. And it's not that reflux in itself causes significant problems or pathology after children are born or during childhood. But what we're learning more and more is that it's the presence of urine infections with reflux that can cause a significant amount of problems with a significant illness in children requiring hospitalization and scarring to the kidneys or even end-stage renal disease, which historically has been the case. Now, in modern contemporary uh, reflux, we don't typically see that. However, we do see the morbidity associated with urinary tract infections in children being admitted to hospitals with possible damage to the kidneys with regards to scarring. Now, reflux is one of those conditions, and we see this often, where the diagnosis is discussed in a variety of ways. However, the only way to really diagnose reflux is with some sort of imaging test that can assess how urine can flow up to the 
kidneys. And so the most common test that we use is something called the VCUG or avoiding cystourethrogram. And the VCUG is basically one of those tests that involves some x-rays and a catheter in the bladder. And typically what happens is the bladder is filled with contrast in a standard fashion. And then we look to see the presence or absence of reflux. So the presence or absence of reflux is seen with filling of the bladder with contrast during x-ray studies. And typically what ends up happening is, is it, there's an associated grading system with it, depending on how high the contrast moves up into the urinary tract. And typically what happens is you have higher grades of reflux. So the grading system is from one to five. So higher grades of reflux are, you know, we think are more significant uh, than the lower grades of reflux, which we now know have a higher chance of resolving on their own without any significant intervention, which is really what we're we're going to talk about in a little bit, the management of, of reflux. So there are different ways of diagnosing it with different types of studies, but the most common by far is something called the VCUG. And once the diagnosis of reflux is made, this is where a lot of confusion begins. And this is not just confusion from parents or pediatricians, but even among pediatric urologists, the approach to reflux is very, very different. So if I told you, you know, what would you do if your child was diagnosed with reflux and they were seen by, or what options you know you would have if your child was diagnosed with reflux and you saw a pediatric urologist being seen uh, 25, 30 years ago to 10 or 15 years ago to today, the, the, the options that would be presented would be vastly different. Historically, what would happen is, is you would have regular VCUGs every year to about a year and a half. And if the reflux persisted or if you had a urinary tract infection or if there was any evidence of damage to the kidneys on ultrasounds or other tests that look at function of the kidney and evaluate for scarring, which we don't do as routinely anymore. You know, you would almost always have surgery, especially if the reflux persisted beyond four or five years of life. And that was the case for everybody. They would be started on antibiotics and they would be put on that protocol. If they had a breakthrough infection or any of the other issues that I've discussed, they would have corrective surgery and the surgery would be open surgery. They'd have a cut done, a little incision in the lower abdomen, and then their ureters would be reimplanted. And that was basically like that until uh, we had other options for more minimally invasive surgeries with uh, endoscopic correction, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. And, you know, that was done in a very easy way, a quick outpatient procedure with uh, reasonably high success rates with good overall patient and uh, parent satisfaction. And so then the, the pendulum really had swung over in, in one direction to uh, overdiagnosis and overcorrection. And then at some point, it started to swing back to the point where we weren't ordering VCUGs. We weren't diagnosing reflux as much. And obviously, we weren't fixing it, correcting it as much. And what has happened with many diagnoses over time, and reflux is just one of them, is when we when it's poorly understood, when it's not, you know, crystallized with regards to how people see it, understand it, and treat it, especially with regards to endpoints and consequences of it, you get a variety of approaches to it, either uh, diagnostic approaches, treatment approaches, follow-up approaches. And I think it's really important to understand that reflux in modern times is more of like a spectrum. And the spectrum is not just having to do with the grade of reflux or the severity of the reflux, but it really has to do with the individual patient characteristics and the risk factors for developing what we think is the most important aspect of modern management of reflux, which is developing urinary tract infections. And so typically we know with in current literature and studies that reflux in the absence of infections is very unlikely to cause any significant damage. And so most of our efforts these days are looking at trying to prevent urinary tract infections and the sequela of urinary tract infections in the presence of reflux. So we're very, very aggressive with 
risk stratifying patients, understanding which patient is at greater risk for developing infections and which patients are at greater risk for having some of the consequences develop of urinary tract infections in the presence of reflux. And so that basically guides the the approach to understanding the patients. So once the diagnosis is made, we really need to understand what this child's overall risk and if they would benefit from treatment. And treatment can take a variety of options. So, you know, just looking at the management of reflux, I had mentioned a bunch of things. I talked about uh, antibiotics, I talked about endoscopic surgery, I talked about open surgery. And it, it was really done in a kind of a haphazard way, depending on surgeon comfort, you know, where you were located regionally, the practice of that institution. And now it's really important to understand the, the graded approach to reflux in that trying to limit the morbidity of infections and the presence of reflux, but also trying to prevent the morbidity associated with some of the treatment. And the morbidity associated with some of the treatments does not always just involve open invasive surgery. Even looking at taking a daily antibiotic for months to years for some individuals can be associated with a high level of stress or a certain morbidity for the, the children as well if they develop bacteria that are resistant to some of these antibiotics. So it's again, it's very important to understand the patient, understand their overall risk, and then make appropriate recommendations for that particular child. And so typically what happens with regards to managing reflux, depending on their overall risk, even at the initial visit at our institution, we've developed a risk calculator that we've validated and we essentially stratify our children into different risk categories. And so depending on your risk, so a low risk patient would be followed with serial ultrasounds. We would work on some of the issues that can, some of the variables that can reduce their overall risk, things such as bladder and bowel dysfunction, hydration, perineal hygiene. In boys, we've also found in our going to publish some or publish our work on this, looking at the presence of phimosis or a type 4 skin in the first one to two years of life and how that can impact your overall risk of developing a urinary tract infection and how that pertains to reflux. And so it's really important to identify what the child's overall risk is. And so when we identify a child at low risk, we're more apt to manage some of the behavioral issues that we can and risk reduce them to the point where we think that their chance of having a urinary tract infection is low. And those are usually the types of patients that would benefit from that kind of, you know, surveillance because most of the time they also typically fall into a category of patients whose reflux may resolve spontaneously over time. And, you know, that's kind of the message for most of the reflux except the very high-grade reflux, which even though there is a chance it may resolve spontaneously over time, it happens less often. And so the lower-risk patients that we identify typically will follow carefully uh, with serial ultrasounds and follow-up visits to reinforce some of the behavioral teaching and to reinforce some of the good habits that we want them to have to decrease their overall risk of having a subsequent urinary tract infection, as I said, until the reflux resolves. And some children that we think are maybe at higher risk, they may benefit from course of daily preventative antibiotics to further decrease their risk of having a urinary tract infection. And it's really important to look at your overall risk as not just necessarily like you would in a, in a binary fashion, like it's a light switch, but it's again, it's more of an overall risk where your threshold to develop a urinary tract infection is really additive. And it's additive to many factors that play a role 
So as we talked about your sex, the sex of the child, the age of the child, the grade of the reflux, the presence of bowel dysfunction, the presence of bladder dysfunction, perineal hygiene. And it, what we have found is one important variable is also the use of antibiotics. And so the antibiotics are not definitive in preventing all urinary tract infections, but they can help in certain children to reduce your overall risk of having a urinary tract infection so that say if you know you're able to do two or three of the six or seven things that we want you to do that would decrease your risk significantly antibiotics may help push you in a direction where you're at slightly lower risk for having a urinary tract infection but again if you're doing nothing else other than taking antibiotics your risk may still be very high and so it's really important to understand the patient, the parents, the situation, the environment, and try to manage all these factors so that your overall risk, which really does fluctuate, and, I don't, and I'm not trying to say it fluctuates on a day-to-day basis, but it really does, I mean, it, it is not static. It is not static. And so that making sure that your children are practicing all these good habits along with taking antibiotics if the clinician feels that they may add the benefit is very important. And so one of the first treatments that we can talk about, as I said, is antibiotics. So the pros and cons of taking antibiotics are, you know, such that you need to take it every day. So if you take it uh, once, a, you know, once every other day or a couple days a week, you're not really having that benefit. And so it's something that you really need to take every day. And that could be burdensome for some families that they just, we have some families that just don't want to take antibiotics and would rather have a simple, you know, outpatient uh, corrective procedure that takes 10 or 15 minutes with a high success rate instead of taking antibiotics, you know, for six months or a year or even in some institutions until children are toilet trained. And so, you know, that's that's certainly an option for some people. So other cons of taking antibiotics are that you can still have an infection and the infection may actually be with a bacteria that has some resistance to that antibiotic. And some of these bacteria, once they develop a resistance to an antibiotic, oftentimes that class of antibiotics might not be able to have been used. There's lots of literature on global rises in antibiotic resistance across all groups of antibiotics. So I think it's really important to use antibiotics judiciously and not just have a, a shotgun approach at uh, identifying somebody with reflux and putting them on antibiotics in sort of a knee-jerk fashion. It's really important to understand who would benefit and who would not. Sometimes, you know, we have high-risk kids that even if you put them on antibiotics, we feel that the risk of having a breakthrough infection or sequela of the reflux is great, is too high. And so that we would recommend early surgery versus a course of prophylactic antibiotics for, as I said, months to even years, depending on when they start and how long you want to keep them on the antibiotics. The pros of antibiotics are simple. It's a, I mean, it is a pill. You do take it every day, but you could avoid surgery and the dreaded anesthesia that parents are so worried about, but which is exquisitely safe in many of these kids. And so the pros and cons of antibiotics are reasonably low in terms of uh, the effects. But as I said, there could potentially be uh, consequences to it. Thank you for listening to the first half of Dr. Elias Webby's podcast on the treatment options of BUR. If you have any related topics you would like to hear, please reach out to us at info at deflux.com. Again, that's info at deflux.com. We would appreciate your ideas. Now enjoy the second half of Dr. Webby's podcast where he talks about endoscopic treatment, open reimplantation, and robotic open reimplantation.
One of the other options that we discuss and have a low threshold to recommend to our patients is endoscopic correction. And that's a minimally invasive procedure. Typically, it's one of those procedures that was first described back in the early 80s. And I think one of the original materials that was used, which I mean, I've never used this, was Teflon. And essentially, one injection was performed and success rates obviously were much less. There's been several other types of materials used over time, polyacrylate, polyalcohol, copolymer, which is called PPC or PDS is another material, uh, macroplastic, which you've used in the past. The modern approach to endoscopic treatment for reflux uh, essentially uses a deflux, which is a basic dextronomer in a high hyaluronic acid a gel. And uh, essentially, it's uh, these microspheres, which are about 80 to 250 micrometers, and they're suspended in this gel of hyaluronic acid. And all of it's, the gel is biodegradable and it gets reabsorbed. And essentially what's left is this uh, dextronomer microsphere, and that becomes encapsulated in the body in collagen and fibroblasts. And it does decrease in volume a little bit, but it, essentially we found it's reasonably robust in, in that when the ejection is performed, the success rates are reasonably high in at least in our hands. And also across the literature, they've been reasonably favorable, especially since the onset of an, an adjustment to the original technique, which was a single hit technique. Now we do something called the double hit technique, which is basically two injections of the essentially deflex to help really create this muscle, this support for the ureter to prevent a reflux. So if you really think about it, the best example I can give to see how this works, because it's really hard to conceptualize. Most of the surgical interventions that we have for reflux essentially try to increase the length of the tunnel, which is basically the ureter, which is, as I said earlier, the tube going from the kidney to the bladder. As it tunnels through the muscle in the bladder wall, which is called the detrusor muscle. And if you think about it, you know, why don't all people have reflux? Why, when a ureter is connected to this floppy bag, why, when the bag fills with urine, does urine not move back up the ureter? And the, it's, it's, it's reasonably quite ingenious. And typically what happens is, so this is how reflux is prevented individuals with a normal uh, ureteral vesicle junction. And typically what happens is, is the ureter as it descends tunnels through the muscle. And there's this thin lining of the bladder wall, the urethelium that covers the ureter. And the ureter is supported in the back by this detrusor muscle. And the best example I can think of is if, if you have a straw and you tunnel it in this very, very thick latex balloon. You could imagine tunneling a, this little straw in a very thick latex balloon. When you inflate the latex balloon, as it expands, it, it gets thinner. And you could imagine the inside of the latex balloon squeezing the straw against the outside of the latex balloon. And so what happens is you generate some resistance throughout that little straw. And so the longer the tunnel is, the greater the resistance. Now, what would happen if I took that straw and I just taped it on the outside of the latex balloon and I filled up the balloon with air? The balloon is still going to get thinner, but you're not going to have that compressive aspect, that compressive effect on the ureter. And so that's exactly how the ureter works in, in the body, where it tunnels through the detrusor muscle as the bladder fills the urine and the urethelium squeeze the ureter against this robust muscle backing. So essentially all the treatments we have essentially either elongate the tunnel to help create that l greater length to increase the amount of overall resistance across the tunnel, or what it does is it helps to support the muscle backing so that as the bladder fills, it squeezes the ureter against that material. And that's exactly how deflux works. So when we inject deflux, we essentially inject it behind the ureter, posterior to the ureter, to help elevate it. 
And you want a nice mound that, you know, is reasonably long. And there are certain configurations that you want to see when you're doing the injections. But typically what happens is, is as the bladder fills, the lining of the bladder, the urethelium squeezes the ureter against the deflex. And it sort of replicates what is seen in the body, you know, within a normal uh, ureteral vesicle junction as that interacts. So as I was alluding to earlier, historically, when we were doing just one injection at the ureteric orifice where the ureter enters the bladder, when it was increased to doing a double hit approach, the success rates were much higher and in some studies, well over 90%. So at some point, we had this procedure, which was very quick, took 10 or 15 minutes. It was an outpatient procedure. There were no incisions on the skin or, you know, cuts for the family to see. And again, children were discharged home the same day with, uh, you know, very, very good success rates. And so at some point, you know, we were doing a significant amount of deflex injections and endoscopic correction for deflex. And as I was alluding to earlier, as the pendulum started to swing over with some studies advocating for less VCUGs being done and less reflux being diagnosed, I think we started to lose some of these patients where they may have benefited from intervention. And they were essentially, you know, cast by the wayside because their reflux wasn't being diagnosed. They were having infections and they were being exposed to this risk potentially unnecessarily. But again, having said that, you know, there were also early on probably a significant amount of children that were either having open surgery or endoscopic connection that may have not benefited from it. So I really think it's important to understand the balance. I think now we're moving back towards identifying those patients that would benefit from treatment and that trying to get them the care that they need to avoid some of the consequences. So in terms of the endoscopic correction, looking at some of the pros and cons and of the procedure. So again, one of the benefits, as I said, it's a very quick procedure, outpatient procedure. Complication risk is very, very, very low. The rates of uh, obstruction after deflux injection are, you know, less than one half of one percent, are very, very low. I, I've seen it in the literature, but I've never uh, myself uh, had it uh, or any of my partners have uh, had patients with postoperative obstruction. And really, it's what we think happens is it's the patient was poorly selected for the procedure as opposed to the obstruction being caused by either injecting too much or injecting it inappropriately in an abnormal location. There are a group of patients that can have reflux, but with some obstruction. And that would usually be seen with some nuance on the VCUG test. So it's very important to, just like with everything, select your patients appropriately for the right management. And so again, the pros uh, we discussed, the cons for endoscopic correction are, you know, very minimal. One of the main ones is that you have recurrence so that the deflux injection or the endoscopic correction was not successful. And that does happen with some higher grade patients. So Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but still I think it's approved for grades one to four. So uh, deflux is for patients that have VUR that are grades two, three, and four. Yeah. So, and it, and, but ha having said that, we've injected uh, kids that have had lower grade, like grade one reflux, but have had multiple urinary tract infections. That may have been an element of the VCUG uh, having presented with a lower grade than what the, the children actually are exposed to. So there's some element of either being falsely negative or falsely positive with regards to diagnostic tests, which the VCUG has. And then we also have used it for grade five to either downgrade uh, patients or an approach where they have had multiple treatments to correct the reflux. So in our hands, it, it really still is an option and a 
wide variety of patients. Looking at uh, some of the issues with uh, patient satisfaction and parental satisfaction, we avoid the need for hospital admission. We avoid the need for open surgery and the morbidity associated with it. And I'll talk about some of the issues associated with open reimplantation uh, as a management uh, approach. And so, again, just to summarize, one of the first steps, one of the first management principles would be starting patients on prophylactic antibiotics. And that would just be to help keep them infection-free until the reflux resolves. And that would be used in some of our low to intermediate risk patients. Our very low-risk patients, we don't even use antibiotics, and we'll just follow them serially with uh, imaging, either with an ultrasound or just clinic visits to help reinforce some of the teachings. The next sort of graded approach would be endoscopic correction, which we talked about is associated with a little morbidity, but uh, reasonably high success rates in the literature anywhere from 80 to over 93% success rate. The next approach for management of reflux is open surgery. And typically, open surgery involves making an incision in the lower abdomen, either across or up and down, and then physically reimplanting the ureters. I don't want to get into all the different types of ureteric reimplantations because there are many. There are approaches where the bladder is opened or where the bladder is left closed and it's reimplanted externally, and then there's different variations uh, of the two approaches. That's the most invasive type of surgery that we do. You know, there is a risk of bleeding, a risk of infection, and again, the risk of anesthesia is there. It is very low, but anesthesia is longer uh, than the endoscopic correction. The one benefit to open surgery is that no other modality has shown to be as successful. So, success rates are well over 95 to almost 98%. Uh, across the board for open surgery. So that's one of the benefits of open surgery is the high success rate. And typically with open surgery, I mean, we don't even need to get a VCUG afterwards uh, for follow-up just because we know the success rates are so high. Oftentimes, families uh, want to be certain. And so it's we may organize a confirmatory test, as I said, such as a VCUG to ensure that the reflux uh, has resolved with surgery. The OR time is longer and the hospital stay is typically one to two nights, depending on the surgery, sometimes longer. Most kids essentially wake up with a catheter, which can be bothersome for them. Overall, again, patient satisfaction and parental satisfaction is is still high just due to the success rate, but it historically was one of the most commonly performed procedures for reflux that has been done. Interestingly, over the last 10 or 15 years with the changes in the approach of reflux, we had before endoscopic correction, it was all open surgery. And then with the advent of endoscopic correction, there's quite a bit of endoscopic surgery happening just because it was easy to do and the success rates were high. And we noticed when there was a shift in the amount of VCUGs that were done based on recommendations from certain national groups, that reflux was being detected at a lower rate just because of we were doing less VCUGs to detect it. But the rates of open surgery never really changed over time. And so that kind of is very interesting because what it tells us is that, you know, the very significant high-risk patients were still getting treatment. And what I suspect was happening was that the children that were still benefiting from intervention, those were the kids, the more intermediate risk type patients, those were the patients that were probably you know, left by the wayside, they weren't being picked up as readily and managed because, again, we weren't doing VCUGs as much and we weren't detecting reflux as much. And so really, just like everything, there is an important balance that needs to be struck for managing these patients because, 
you don't want to overdiagnose and overtreat, but what you want to do is, you know, so oftentimes underdiagnosing and missing certain opportunities to intervene and change the overall trajectory for some of these kids is something that we definitely do not want to do as well, uh, because there's uh, essentially unknown and untold morbidity associated with that and consequences of uh, them not having had appropriate treatment. Now, along with open surgery, more recently, there has been a shift to avoiding open surgery in some of these uh, children and offering uh, laparoscopic or robotic-assisted laparoscopic approaches. This is a minimally invasive uh, approach where, just like other robotic surgeries are done, instruments are placed and the surgery is done internally without any large open incisions. Now, there is a, a, quite a bit of a learning curve associated with this just because there is nuance to reimplantation surgery. The success rates are actually not as high as open surgery, but they're getting there. And some of the more recent uh, literature has shown the success rates are I improving. The learning curve might not be as uh, flat as we think, but uh, again, there are still some issues with robotic surgery with regards to patient selection. And there is a slight increased risk of complication associated with it with regards to obstruction and, and to success uh, with it. A slightly higher risk as well in, in some studies of things like urine leaks, uh, et cetera. But uh, overall, success rates are good for uh, laparoscopic robotic surgery. And again, it just depends on surgeon uh, preference and comfort with the uh, approach. You know, looking overall at patients' approaches and patient satisfaction for a lot of these procedures, it really does depend on uh, the families uh, with whom you're in contact. And you know, we have some families that live quite far away and can't buy into the regular visits with regards to ultrasounds, don't want to be on antibiotics uh, daily for months to years. And so they're very happy with either having an endoscopic procedure, which is very quick and highly successful, or even open surgery, which is uh, slightly more successful and definitive. But then we also have families that want to avoid the morbidity or you know, perceived complications associated with anesthesia and surgery. And so they're more apt to, you know, follow and are happy to come in for periodic ultrasounds and uh, are, you know, quite uh, happy on daily low-dose antibiotics with the hope that the reflux will resolve spontaneously, which again happens in most reflux except the very high-grade reflux. So it really just, it, it really is a conversation. I mean, gone are the days where you come in to see the pediatric urologist and he or she just tells you what you need to do. It's really is a series of options and it's all about really understanding what the overall risk for this child is, modifying their risk, and then coming up with a treatment plan which is specific for that patient. As I said, we developed a risk a stratifying tool which we use to place our uh, kids in either a low, intermediate, or a high risk uh, stream. And then we would tailor the management. Uh, depending on their overall risk, all the while trying to risk reduce them by identifying and treating whatever perceived risk factors that they may have and making it really clear for families that the risk associated with reflux is not having reflux per se, but is some of the morbidity associated with having infections in the presence of reflux. So all our efforts are really geared towards that. And now if, if a child does present with high risk for having a recurrent urinary tract infection, we really do have a candid discussion with moving ahead with some sort of surgical intervention, be it endoscopic or open. Thank you for joining us for season one of The Peak Space. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Webby's perspective in this episode. If you find value in this content you have heard, 
Please visit the Deflux Learning Center at deflux.com slash HCP for access to more global peer-to-peer educational materials, such as training videos, on-demand webinars, and VUR-related publications. Feel free to share this episode with your colleagues and stay tuned for Season 2, coming January 2021.